being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when, the, when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is in the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. Likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Uh, Father, we need your help desperately to be able to understand, especially the most difficult parts of your word. Would you give us illumination by your Holy Spirit? Uh, would you open up our hearts so that we might receive that which we so desperately need, so that we can know that the kingdom is here in King Jesus, reigning in our hearts, and the kingdom is coming, and we must be prepared for that day. Help us by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. There was a crowd gathered. They had left behind their jobs and their families, and there was eager expectation for his coming. There was a buzz going around. It could be any moment, any day. When would he show up? Now, you might think that I'm talking about Christians speculating about the return of Jesus. That has certainly happened multiple times throughout history. Even hundreds of years in our past, up until the present. But in fact, I'm talking about something completely different. Uh, this was, it happened back in 2021, November. Dallas, Texas, a gathering of people following rumors that had been on the internet that John F. Kennedy Jr. had not in fact died back in 1999, but in fact he would reappear gloriously in Dallas, Texas, ushering in a new era of the Kennedy family that would renew the nation 
usher in a new political reality and make all the wrongs in America right. As you might have guessed by now, it was a big disappointment. Uh, people waited for some time, uh, most of them only for a few days before they got the message, but some hung on for weeks, and even the most diehard hung on for over months, waiting and waiting for him to come back. Now, before we get into our scoffer mode, um, as unwise as it was to put so much stock in internet rumors, undoubtedly, Let's realize that as followers of Jesus, uh, that means we follow a faith that involves a man rising from the dead, and that over 2,000 years ago predicted that he would in fact come back, which is why so many Christians have found themselves following into at least one of two ditches over the years. Uh, one ditch is apathy. You don't want to be disappointed, so you just stop paying much attention to all the passages like the one this morning that talk about the return of Christ. And you just kind of leave them alone because you don't want to be wrong. And then the other ditch is to get lost in the labyrinth of speculation, uh, to get out charts and set dates and construct elaborate theories to try and nail down exactly when or where Jesus will come back. Now, my guess is that you have probably experienced both of those. Maybe you yourself have had both of those things happen in your heart at different times. But Jesus wants something else for us. He wants us to be able to long for his kingdom that's coming. And in the here and now, he wants us to be able with eyes of faith to see the kingdom that's right in front of our faces. Uh, that's why this morning we're going to look at this admittedly very difficult passage and come away with two very, very simple teachings from Jesus. Uh, the kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. And within that I have one main burden for you this morning. That you would prepare your heart for the kingdom that is here and is one day coming. Uh, let's see that together. The kingdom that has come, that's in verses 20 through 21, and the kingdom is coming 22 through 33. Let's start in 20 through 21. The kingdom that has come. Before I jump into that, I just need to give a little pastoral uh, caveat here. Um, the topic of this particular text is one that over the years has been very divisive in the history of the church. Uh, undoubtedly, you have heard people get very worked up about things like the rapture and the tribulation and the antichrist and the return of Christ and the millennium and the end state of all believers. Um, and it's important for us to make sure that we hear these things from Jesus and have the category to place them in. So we are a church, as a church, are committed to preaching through the entire Bible. And that means I don't get to skip passages, even ones that are controversial. Uh, but that doesn't mean that all passages are as clear or even as central to the message of the Bible as others. I get this from the Bible itself. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul, verses 3 through 4, shows us where the priority needs to be. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 
Well, right there, the Apostle Paul tells us there is something of first importance, that is the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. By implication, there are obviously things that are of lesser importance. Um, I think at least two other tiers are helpful. First tier importance, those things that are needed to be saved, certainly the gospel, the core doctrines of the Christian faith. The second tier are those things that are needed for us to be able to have fellowship together in a church. Um, These are the things that if we disagree, we're just not going to get along in the same local body. So things like baptism or church government. And then the third tier, which is much larger than many Christians think, are the things that are necessary because the Bible teaches them, but because they are difficult or because they have less weight given to them in Scripture, are only necessary for personal conviction. Uh, Basically, we should be able to agree to disagree for whatever convictions we come to about what the Bible says on those subjects. So our topic this morning, the second coming of Christ, undoubtedly should be in that third tier. Uh, Now, if you're wondering what our church thinks are in the first two tiers, we've actually taken the time to put that in our statement of faith. The things that we say together, you must believe to be a member of our church. Those should only be those first two. It should have nothing in the third. Um, So I I say all that because uh, I, I have to preach the passage in front of me. I've got to preach it as best I can, so you'll get my view. Um, But I would love it if both the way I preach it as well as the way you receive it has Christian charity being able to uh, put these things in their proper place. Okay, with that caveat out of the way, into the passage itself. Well, verse 20 tells us that Jesus was having another encounter with the Pharisees when they asked him a very typical Pharisaical question for people of their day. Verse 20 being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. We have writings from back then that show that this was a common question people were asking. When is the glorious kingdom of God going to come? Now, you have to remember back then, God's people were an oppressed nation. They were under the thumb of the pagan Gentile Roman Empire And so it was obvious to them that the kingdom of God must not be here yet because our Roman overlords are still kicking us in the teeth on a weekly basis. So most of the Pharisees back then had the same sort of thought. When the kingdom of God comes, when the Messiah appears, it'll mean that the Romans are out and we're back on top. It was mostly thought of as a political, military sort of kingdom. You could point to it and say, there are the borders of the kingdom of God they were expecting. There's the army of the kingdom of God, victorious. There is the king, the Messiah of the kingdom of God. That was their expectation. Uh, But Jesus is going to teach them something different. Uh, What he describes is a very different sort of kingdom. Uh, One that is invisible and spiritual in nature. Second half of verse 20, Jesus describes it. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. If you've been with us through Luke's gospel up until now, this shouldn't come as a shock. Jesus has been talking a lot about the kingdom of God. And some of the parables he's told about the kingdom have had this same theme. That it doesn't look like much is happening right now, but in fact the kingdom is progressing. I remember the parable of the leaven in the dough. 
You can't see the leaven working its way through the lump, but that doesn't mean it's not working. It will inevitably permeate the entire thing in time. Kingdom is also likened to a seed you place in the ground. Doesn't look like much is happening. First few weeks you water, wait, but then very quickly it sprouts up and turns into this giant tree. So it is with the kingdom that Jesus is describing. If you look at it with physical eyes, you can't see it. You have to have eyes of faith. And that's exactly how he describes it. He says that you can't physically look at it. You can't say, look, here it is, or there, because it's something altogether different. And that brings us to the punchline of this section, that last phrase there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, that's the way the ESV renders it. Some translations have the kingdom of God is inside you. Now, that presents some difficulties. Uh, because remember, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, not to his disciples. If Jesus were to say that the kingdom of God was inside you to his disciples, that'd be pretty easy to get. The kingdom of God is where the rule and reign of God is extended. It's in the hearts of the disciples. That makes perfect sense, right? But how can he say that to his enemies? The people who are going to reject him and one day crucify him. Um, this week I learned that down through the ages, Christians have tried a lot of different ways to try to explain this. During the Reformation, the most popular one was that uh, it's an internal thing in a person's heart. Again, I don't think that makes sense talking to the Pharisees. I think the better way to understand it is by way of understanding Jesus' role in relation to the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus' ministry from the beginning has had him preaching the inbreaking kingdom of God. He's done miracles as signs of that kingdom's power to confirm his message. And in fact, as we'll see later in Luke, he is the king of this kingdom. His moment of ascension, where he is lifted up first to the cross, and then lifted up from the grave, and then lifted up to heaven itself, is a sort of being lifted up to his rightful place of glory on a throne. So I think this is what Jesus is trying to get across. The Pharisees are asking him, when's the kingdom going to show up? And Jesus said, you're asking, when's it going to show up? Don't you get it? If you had eyes to see, you would realize the kingdom is staring you right in the face right now. Anywhere where Jesus is, that's where the kingdom of God is. Now, I think we are not in such a different place than the Pharisees. Uh, I mean, sure, in one sense, we don't have the physical Jesus standing in front of us. But I think we do still have the longing in our hearts to be able to point and say, look, there is the kingdom of God. Which of, which of us does not long to see justice done in this world? Which of us does not long to see a day where God's name is not blasphemed, where goodness is upheld? where righteousness is valued. How many of us can honestly say we've never had the thought, wouldn't it be great if there was just such a huge revival that everything changed in our nation and around the world? We've got to be careful because according to Jesus, the kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world. You can't point to it and say, look, there it is. Or look, here it is. 
As he'll one day say to Pilate, remember, his kingdom is not of this world. And yet, I do think there is a very real sense that we as Christians see the kingdom of God each and every week. Uh, Think about it. Uh, If the kingdom of God is anywhere where the rule and reign of God is extended, then your heart is a part of that kingdom. Jesus lives there by the Holy Spirit. He does his will through the Holy Spirit and through your will. And as a result of that, you see actions of the kingdom week after week. Uh, Every time you turn away from your sin and instead choose costly obedience, you are seeing the power of the kingdom of God at work. Every time you have an opportunity to talk to someone about Jesus and you feel a little hesitant, but instead you trust the power of the Holy Spirit and in boldness you speak up about Christ. In that moment, you are seeing the kingdom of God at work. Uh, Every time you are going through a fiery, difficult trial, and in a way you can't fully articulate, but you know to be true, your soul is sheltered from the storm surrounding you. That is the kingdom of God at work inside you. If you have eyes to see it, you will see the workings of the kingdom each and every day you walk this earth. And yet I do think that there is one particular place that God has intended for us to see the kingdom most visibly week after week. And that is the gathering of the people of God in the church. Uh, Jonathan Lehman says that the church is the kingdom of God made visible. The more I thought about that, the more I think it's right. Uh, What are we as a church? We are an assembly, a gathering of citizens of the kingdom of heaven who leave behind our earthly vocations and all the other things we're involved with to gather together to, on bended knee, come to our King Lord Jesus and cast our eyes to the beauty of his kingdom. Each song we sing is a foretaste of that glory of that kingdom that's one day coming. Each mark of our fellowship is a reminder that the kingdom is already here. And each Sunday that we gather together, that means something really important is happening in your heart, whether you realize it or not. You are being prepared for the day of the kingdom's coming. Uh, Whether we are aware that God is doing this or not, each time we gather and we obey that command to not forsake assembling, we are losing our, the grip of the glittering gold of this world. We're turning our eyes away from the things that might otherwise distract us and placing them on the kingdom that's right here in front of our faces, the one that Jesus brought, the one that's in our midst. So my dear brothers and sisters, would you just slow down this week? Ask yourself, am I seeing the kingdom in our midst? Secondly, though, it's not just enough to see the kingdom that's here right now because this is also a kingdom that's off in the future coming. And this brings us to our second point. The the kingdom is coming in verses 22 through 37. And I know that there's a lot more verses in this one, but don't fret. We're about halfway there. I'm going to pick up the pace a bit and hopefully retain clarity. Verse 22 tips us off that Jesus is talking to his disciples 
And what he's talking to them about is something different. Uh, four times he's going to use a phrase, in the days of the Son of Man. Now, if you know your Old Testament well, that's ringing bells because in Daniel 9, there is a figure, a Son of Man, who comes to the Ancient of Days and receives a, an eternal kingdom. Uh, his coming is uh, connected to the judgment that will come over the entire earth, a judgment that will separate the righteous from the wicked. Well, Jesus loves to apply that title to himself, and when he talks about the days of the Son of Man, he is using that as a way of describing his glorious, powerful, visible second coming to usher in the judgment and the end of all things. He teaches four specific things about it. We'll look at each of them briefly. The first, in 22 through 25, is that this coming of the kingdom will be unmistakable. He said to the disciples that days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Jesus is telling the disciples he was talking to, there's a day coming, I'm not going to be with you. You're going to be longing to see me again. You're going to be looking forward to the day when I return. And on that day, there's going to be all sorts of fake news swirling about. People saying, I heard a rumor on the internet, Jesus is coming back. Look, there he is. Jesus says, you don't have to listen to any of that. Why? Uh, because you don't have to worry you're going to miss my return. When it comes, everyone's going to know it. It is going to be unmistakable. And Jesus gets us that across with that image of lightning. All of us have seen lightning, right? Um, if you've ever been close to lightning, you know the power and terror of it. But if you've ever seen a strong lightning storm on a night sky, you know just how unmistakable it is. I was driving through the hills of Tennessee uh, through the night. The whole family was asleep. I was praying, Lord, don't let me fall asleep. Uh, trying to just keep my eyes on the lines on the highway. It started storming, really heavy rain. It's hard to see visibly. I'm, I, my eyes are as wide open as they can be, trying to make sure I don't go off the road. And then, all of a sudden, everything lit up. The sky turned an electric color, and I saw a lightning bolt go all the way across. And it was like daytime for a split second. And then I heard the thunder and the crash. And after that, my heart was going plenty fast. There was no sleep happening, trust me. There's no hiding a powerful lightning bolt that goes from one side of the sky to the other. Why does Jesus say that? Because so will it be on the day of the Son of Man. When he comes, everyone will know it. You don't have to worry about missing it because you didn't have the right charts worked out. When it happens, you'll know it and so will everyone else. That's the first thing he says. The second thing he says balances that out. Not only is it unmistakable, it's also unexpected. Uh, there's a real sense where everyone will see it when it happens, but no one will see it coming. 
Verse 26, uh, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Jesus uses two examples from your Old Testament. I'm sure you know them, particularly the first one, the one of Noah and the flood. Uh, Noah and his family were the only ones that listened to God's warnings that watery wrath would envelop the world, destroying all the unrighteousness that had covered it. As a result, they went into the ark in order to be saved. Now, what Jesus draws our attention to, though, is not Noah's faith, not all the animals that he let in, but to the absolute ordinary nature of life on the day when the watery wrath of God came. It says on that day, people were doing the same thing they had been doing for generations. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, with no clue that judgment was about to overcome them all. Uh, the second example from Sodom is similar. Uh, this one was the case, remember, Lot and his family chose to live in the cities of Sin, Sodom, and Gomorrah. That proved to be a really bad choice. But in the mercy of God, with Abraham's mediation, and then with an angel being sent, both Lot and his wife heeded the warnings of the angel to escape the fiery judgment that was about to come. They left in the nick of time as fire from heaven fell and consumed them all. Uh, but what is Jesus pointing his attention to here? It's how ordinary that day must have seemed. And they were doing the same things that they always do, just going about their usual routines, buying and selling, eating and drinking, even getting married and being given in marriage. There was no warning whatsoever when the fire from heaven came and consume them all. Now, what's Jesus' point in all this? It's in verse 30. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. The coming, the second coming of Jesus, the coming of the kingdom of God and the righteousness of that kingdom and judgment, it will come swiftly and unexpectedly, and it will catch a world completely by surprise. Uh, Jesus is being very stark here because he wants us to hear this warning. If you think you can wait until judgment day arrives to make peace with God, you must know it will be too late. There will be no time. Which is why he says the third thing about the second coming and that coming kingdom and that is that the coming kingdom requires us to have hearts that are unattached to the things of this world. That's what we see in 31 through 33. That we must have hearts that are unattached to this world. Jesus says, on that day, let the one who is in the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. 
He uses two examples that are similar to each other. Uh, one, there is somebody that is on their roof, kind of the equivalent of being on your porch today. They're sitting out there and they see the doom coming in some sense. He says, in that moment, love your life more than you love your stuff. Don't try to go back in the house and get your family heirlooms and your riches. Just get out of there and save your skin. Uh, second one, similar, this time people in the field. People out there in the field, somehow or the other, they understand the danger is approached. Don't turn back, trying to think about how you could get back to your house and get your stuff and get out of there. Love your life more than you love your, your stuff. Why is Jesus saying this? I, I don't think in this case he's describing something physical that will happen in a future day, as if when judgment day is arriving, you have the chance to go back into your house and get things or not. I don't think that's what he means. Because he says, verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Uh, that was the tragic part of Lot's story, wasn't it? Lot and his family, they make it out of Sodom and Gomorrah as the fire falls. But Lot's wife, she's still attached to all the things she left behind. Her heart still longs for the cities of sin. So she turns around and she gets turned into a pillar of salt in judgment. Uh, Phil Riken put me onto this Spurgeon quote. Spurgeon said, the tragedy of Lot's wife is that she was almost saved. She came so close and yet her heart couldn't let go of what she left behind. Now this is undoubtedly what Jesus is saying. I think verse 33 makes that clear. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. As Jesus has taught many times already in Luke's gospel, if we are to be his disciples and one day be welcomed into the kingdom that's coming, we have to let go of all the things that we love in this world. We have to let go of the sin, the things that glitter and attract us. We have to be willing to Leave it all behind in order to gain something so much greater. The kingdom of God and all the joy our hearts could contain in the face of King Jesus himself. Now, Jesus is here telling us that we must make this decision ahead of time. That we must hold all the things in our lives and in this world with open hands. Being ready to leave them behind so our hearts are not attached to the world that will be consumed in judgment so that we won't be consumed along with them. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, I have to say, as I thought of you this week, I found myself rejoicing. I think I see strong evidence that you do love the Lord and you do love his coming more than you do love the things of this world around you. Uh, you give so graciously of the means the Lord provides I find you talking often of what you hope the second coming of Christ will bring and what heaven will be like. Let me just exhort you, according to Jesus, this is how you prepare your hearts for his coming. It's not about mapping out complicated charts. It's about having a heart that's ready and eager and longing for Jesus and just letting go of the stuff that could hold on to us in this world. Uh, there's one final thing that Jesus says in this section. It's that the kingdom's coming 
brings unavoidable judgment. That's in 34 through 37. This is what happens if we don't let go of those things of the world. It says in verse 34, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Uh, Jesus uses two very similar examples again, and they're very well known. But chances are you have probably heard them de described to teach what's known as the, the secret rapture. That's the idea that Christians are suddenly and unexpectedly taken away from the world as the wrath of God is coming upon it. And so the two are left, one's left, one uh, is taken, is the one that's taken is taken off to salvation. Um, I'm going to disagree with that view. I'll tell you why in a second. Um, the reasons why I do are really just the way the passage is laid out, the way Jesus connected it to what comes right after it. Uh, the important detail for us to catch about this division, though, is that it's happening in the most ordinary of circumstances. Uh, two people sleeping the night away in a bed. One's taken, the other's left. Two people doing everyday chores, grinding. One's taken, and the other's left. Clearly, Jesus is teaching that there's an unavoidable nature to this, that there's going to be a dividing line that opens itself up down the middle of humanity, and you will either end up on one side or on the other. Now, as to why I think this is referring to judgment, not salvation, it's because of what comes right after. The disciples ask him that question, where, Lord? And the way Jesus responds is undoubtedly a reference to judgment. Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, that's undoubtedly a very grisly, uh, not a very nice picture, is it? Um, I was at a track meet yesterday for Lillian, and we were sitting there, and I looked up in the sky, and I could see some vultures circling maybe about half a mile away. Now, I didn't have to get in my car and go drive over there to be able to figure out that there was something dead underneath where those vultures were, right? Because God made vultures to notice and feed on dead things. They're really good at it, right? So Jesus is using that picture to describe, uh, to answer the disciples' question of where? So I think the where is them asking, where is this judgment going to take place? We don't want to go there, Jesus. Help us avoid it. And his answer is something like, uh, you don't have to worry. The where isn't really that important. Wherever there is death, that's where judgment is going to come. So undoubtedly, what Jesus is teaching here has a strong note of finality and sobriety to the end of this very strong teaching of his, which is me, why I'm going to start my applications on that same note. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or you're not sure if you are, one of the things Jesus is warning you about very directly this morning is you cannot assume you will have opportunity to make peace with God. The second coming of Jesus and that coming kingdom and the judgment of God, it will come so swiftly and so unexpectedly and so unavoidably 
that you must take action right here and right now. See, what the Bible teaches is that we are all, the bad news of it, spiritually dead. Uh, We are the ones that the vultures will naturally feed on one day, left of ourselves. That's because we've all sinned against God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. And the second coming of Christ will bring eternal death. The outer darkness, a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, But friend, it doesn't have to be that way for you. Uh, You can instead find yourself on the other side of that kingdom that's coming. But you must do something. You must repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus himself made it possible for that to happen. He did that by as he predicted earlier in the passage, allowing himself to be crucified and killed by his enemies. Uh, He did that so that he could pay the penalty for sinners of all types, even your type, friend. And then he was raised from the dead, ascended into heaven, so that we could know for sure that he could save us from the wrath of God to come now and forever. And in fact, Give us warm welcome in the courts of heaven and in his kingdom to come that's already here. So my friend, no matter where you've been in your life, this is what Jesus is saying to you this morning. Would you make peace with God now? If you don't know how to do that, um, if you have a Christian friend, I will just offer on their behalf. They would love to explain it to you. Just ask them, how can I do what the preacher said? How can I be saved from the judgment of God one day? They'd be glad to explain it to you. Uh, To those of us who are Christians this morning, again, I think a somber tone is the right one to start on in our applications. Surely, if we take seriously this unavoidable, terrible judgment of God coming, surely we should want to do everything we can so that people we know don't end up there. Now, the Ability to save someone is not in our hands. We, we cannot change someone's heart. We don't have that power. Only God can do that. And yet he does use us. He gives us a limited number of people that we know and a limited, limited number of conversations with them. So this week I want to ask you to consider this question. Might Jesus use me to warn them about the consequences of not being ready for the kingdom that's coming? Would you share with grace and with love, knowing that there's no sorrow worse than the eternal sorrow of being under the wrath of God forever? Would we be faithful to, as we are able to, share the good news of Jesus Christ that can save and can make people, those who are not destined for wrath, but instead destined for the glorious inheritance in the kingdom of God? Now, with that said, I do think it's right for us, knowing the whole testimony of Scripture, to end on a note of joy. Because, yes, we do need to prepare our hearts for the kingdom, which will bring with it powerful judgment. And yet, if we are in Jesus Christ and covered by his blood, that's not a day we fear. It's actually a day we long for. We know on that day, There'll be an end to all of our struggles against sin. We know on that day, there'll be no more trials for God to preserve us through. 
Uh, We know on that day our joy will be full because we'll see Jesus face to face. And he will be our joy forever. So with John and with the church down through the ages, the cry of our hearts needs to be, come, Lord Jesus, come. Because that day will be the day of our salvation. So my dear brothers and sisters, this week I pray that you would see the kingdom all around you. The way God's working in your life and the fellowship you share with other Christians. But I also pray that he would help you with eyes of faith to see the kingdom that is coming. And to long for it as you have prepared your heart for its coming. Would you pray with me? Oh Jesus. Thank you for giving us confidence for the day that approaches. That we, must, that we ought not fear it, but instead long for it with eager expectation. Uh, Jesus, would you confirm in our hearts this morning that your kingdom has already come. That we know it because we have experienced it. That we are actually experiencing it at this very moment. That as we, in a moment, join our voices together worship you in song, that we would have a foretaste of that great kingdom that will one day be ours, a place of righteousness and rest and unending joy. And Jesus, would you also help us to be faithful in all of this for the moment we live in? Uh, We want to live for righteousness and be salt and light and witness to our neighbors And yet we know we only have the gifts you've given us and the time you've allotted us. So help us to be faithful, to be ambassadors of your kingdom now, and to be ready for its coming in the future. Help us to do all this, Jesus, we pray in your mighty name. Amen.